Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3, as we continue our study in this small but important book of the Old Testament. To understand Jonah chapter 3, you really need to uh, see the setting of the last verse of chapter 2. Jonah 2 verse 10 says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I know that's kind of a strange place to start a message, but uh, we've got to understand what was Jonah doing in a fish? Why did he end up on the shore in a mess like that? Well, let's review a little bit. God has told Jonah to go to Nineveh. That's a foreign country. It's uh, that away, very far away, some 500 miles from his home beloved area. Jonah doesn't want to go to the Assyrians. He doesn't like them. And so he gets on a ship going to Tarshish. And he's in the Mediterranean Sea heading as far as he can west the other direction. God doesn't give up easily. So God sends a storm. And in that storm, the entire ship that Jonah is on is in peril of such magnitude that everyone thought they were going to die. Finally, it comes out through Jonah's admission that this storm came from his disobedience, and at Jonah's insistence, they throw him overboard. He's going to die. Jonah, in chapter 2, describes later through a psalm of thanksgiving what it was like to be thrown into the sea and experience near death. But God had prepared this great fish as an instrument of grace to save his life. And he was in it for three days and three nights, and that brings us to chapter 2, verse 10, where the fish delivers him to the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And so we see the grace of God in God sparing his life. Why? Why didn't God pick someone else to do the job that Jonah refused to do? That's what we're looking at today. Why does God give us a second chance? Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's the same message. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. So God speaks to Jonah with the exact same instructions as the first time in chapter 1. It comes a second time. He has a second chance. How many of you know what a mulligan is in golf? Okay. Okay. How many wish you were on a golf course right now someplace warm? Yes, I'm sorry. Sorry, you're here. A mulligan is a second chance. Jonah gets the second chance to obey. God doesn't always give second chances, by the way. Later on this morning, we're going to look at a series of Bible characters who received a second chance and some who did not. And try to think and discern what might be the difference. So please understand that the message today is not that you don't need to take God seriously the first time. Because when we don't take God seriously the first time, there will be consequences even if he's going to give us a second chance. 
What have been the consequences for Jonah thus far? Well, first of all, he's in this storm, imperiling not only his life, but seemingly everybody on that ship. Secondly, not just the storm, but he experienced what it means to drown, getting, it seems, right down to that very last breath of death. So he experienced the storm, he experienced near drowning, he experienced three days and nights in the intestines of a fish. I cannot think of a more miserable three days, even if you have some air to breathe, however God did it. I can't think of a more miserable place to be. And then fourthly, he experienced fish vomit, okay? And so the next thing he has to do is he has to wipe himself off, and he's got to get probably back to home, get some clean clothes, and go and finally do what God asked him to do. So this is not a message about, hey, it's not too big of a deal if you don't obey God the first time. God is, God is asking us to respond the first time, but it's amazing how God gives second chances. And if he does, it's because he has a very important purpose for us to fulfill. Uh, God's purpose was to get the message of his grace to Nineveh. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. That's that's an important clue about second chances. You see, it's not necessarily about you and me. The second chance is more about maybe what God wants to get done, and he's just choosing to use us, and God is very insistent when he needs to be, right? And so it is his grace that he would use us a second time, but it's about the task. God wanted Jonah, uh, rather Nineveh, to hear his words of warning, and, and Jonah was the choice. But Jonah was learning that God had saved him from death for a purpose. He had saved him so that he could serve him. And that's an important principle. We've seen it a couple times in recent months, actually. I'm going to start with a verse that that, uh, points that out from Ephesians. Immediately after learning about uh, salvation is not by works, you don't earn it, there is a description of why we were saved and where works fits in. We, were, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God has had a plan in mind before he created us. Ephesians starts with before he created us, how he, he chose us in his love. And so there has been a plan that God wants to use our lives to accomplish certain tasks. Good works. And so if he has called us to do those things, he will also equip us to do those things. 1 Peter 4, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So God's in this process of giving his grace in many different ways to people. There's so many different kinds of needs. And so God has equipped us each as believers with gifts. How are you doing with verse 10 of 1 Peter 4. Use whatever gift you have received. There are four passages in the New Testament that describe spiritual gifts. This is a simple sampling of some gifts, things like serving and teaching and encouraging and giving and leading and showing mercy and evangelism, sharing the gospel. And, and there, there are, these are particular tasks that may be true of all of us in some sense, but we will be particularly gifted in at least one area. Gifts are essentially tools that God gives us to work with. 
uh, during uh, college, a couple of years, I worked in a uh, trucking company mechanics garage as a helper. And one of the main uh, jobs that I had was to run for parts for the mechanics. There's three or four mechanics. And so uh, Jerry, the boss, would hand me the keys to a, to a well-worn blue Ford pickup. And I ran all over uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, and Omaha, Nebraska picking up parts. But it'd be foolish to give me a job of getting parts without giving me the tools to go get the parts. Other times Jerry would ask me to, to change tires or fix, fix lights on a trailer or whatever, and so I had the tools of the shop available at my disposal. God will not give us tasks without tools. And so uh, a responsibility that we have is to begin serving him, and it's through that a process of serving him that we begin to discover where particularly God has gifted us. And so what if we don't? Follow God's direction. I think that's what the book of Jonah is here for in, many, in, in a major sense. What if we say no? Well, God is pretty persistent. But he, he wanted to get a job done, get the gospel, get the message of repentance to, to uh, uh, Nineveh. And God knew that Jonah would obey. The second time, as I think through different second chance opportunities in Scripture, one thing is true of, of, of the second chances, and that is that they obeyed. Can you identify times, or maybe you're in a season now, where there's something that you sense God is directing you to activate your faith and serve? Have there been times in the past? Can you think of, of a sense in which you are refusing or have refused? Just kind of kind of let God speak to you. Uh, don't induce guilt he does not intend. But do listen for the Holy Spirit to speak about what, where is God directing you. Are you sensitive to his voice? So that you could discern where or how or who. Are you praying about your serving? Are you um, willing to hear instructions that are not matching your desires, like Jonah? Because it might be something you really enjoy. It might be something you wouldn't have thought you would enjoy. Do you have an attitude of servanthood? Frankly, as, as Jonah begins to obey in chapter 3, we will find out in chapter 4 his attitude was not yet there. God can correct our attitude on the fly once we obey. Isn't he always doing that? Isn't he always addressing our attitude? But the first step is obedience. But where God is taking Jonah is to obey with the right attitude. There's a uh, little saying that Priscilla and I have uh, heard probably decades ago and we remind ourselves from time to time about uh, service. There's a bronze sculpture of uh, Jesus washing uh, probably Peter's feet. But the little saying is this, the true test of a servant is how you respond when treated like one. There, there are often moments in, in serving, serving the Lord where suddenly there is a need, an opportunity, and this is what probably hurts the most, an assumption that we'll do something that kind of knocks at our pride. It's like, you know, that's below my pay grade. I'm willing to do this, 
But I'm not willing to do that. I mean, if it has to do with, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the, the, the nature of a menial task of, you know, I, I'd be happy to teach on marriage, but I don't really want to help my wife with the dishes. <laughs> but but when, we're, when we're treated like a servant, we can sense God at work in this crucial issue of how he wants to use us. Does it have to do with something we wouldn't necessarily like to do, a place we don't really want to go? You know, nursing homes aren't for us, or the kitchen isn't for us, or whatever it might be. And yet that is where God is at work. It seems like that was an issue for Jonah, because it wasn't that he hadn't or wouldn't serve we already saw in Second Kings that Jonah had in fact served as a prophet and gone and delivered a message to who? The king of Israel. It was good news and it probably kind of made him look pretty good. But then God said, leave your beloved Israel and go to Nineveh. People you don't like. And Jonah ran for the dock and headed out across the sea. We see how well that worked out. But the point is that God didn't destroy Jonah. He gave him a second chance. He had his attention, the, the violently listing ship, the, the innards of a fish, and the almost drowning. All these things got his attention so that when the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give it. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Nineveh was uh, about 500 miles from Israel, uh, the roundabout way you need to go. That's supposed to represent a possible path. X marks the spot where uh, chapter 2, verse 10 takes place, and he, he finds himself on the shore, and he heads eventually to Nineveh. If it's about a 500-mile journey, a day's walk was considered 20 miles, and if you walk three miles an hour or whatever, and you can do that. And So picture about a month of Jonah on his way to Nineveh. He didn't really want to go. We'll find that out in chapter 4. He obeyed, but he didn't really want to go. You can almost picture him like kicking the gravel along the way or kind of the attitude of a middle schooler that's just been told he's got to clean his room or... Uh, Maybe one of us, we signed up for some ministry and then the time comes, we've got to do it. We go, oh, why do I ever do that? Um, after a month of travel, he gets there. We know kind of how Jonah felt because we're projecting from chapter 4. But how did, Jonah, did God feel? That's what we find in these opening verses. How did God feel about Nineveh? Chapter 1, verse 2, Nineveh is called a great city. Chapter 3, verse 2, when the call comes a second time, it's called a great city. A great city generally means a large city, and indeed it was. There's an artist's view of, a, of what ancient Nineveh might have looked like, and it's based on some reality because there are ruins that go back to the time of Jonah. Uh, there has uh, been some reconstruction of some key gates that took place but you can't take those pictures anymore because in 2015, ISIS came and pulled down the gates of Nineveh. Because you see, Nineveh is right in the heart of Mosul, Iraq. That's where Nineveh is. And right now, I understand that some of these key gates, the Adad Gate and the Mashkey Gate, have been destroyed, and these are just mounds of dirt. But 
there's evidence in this archaeologically of this quote, great city. It was a great city. But now in verse 3, I have the term, it's a very important city. Or you may have the term exceedingly great or very great. It's an an interesting um, adjective because the the term in in the Hebrew language is, the word very is the word great to God. How great is it? It's great to God great. It may have just been an idiom to have the name of God, Elohim, as an adjective, but it seems to suggest that this was not just a great big city, but a city clearly very important to God. God saw Nineveh as important, and and he's in the process of aligning his view of Nineveh, conforming Jonah to God's view of Nineveh. It's a very important city to God. Uh, there's a mention then of three days, a three days journey, a visit required three days, and just about most translations ha- are kind of grappling with what does that mean, a three days journey. Um, it's uncertain because it does not, cannot mean it takes three days to walk across it because we do know where uh, Nineveh is and was and uh, how big it was. It wouldn't take three days to walk across it or three days to walk around it. Here's a Google Maps view of Mosul, Iraq. But the city of Nineveh, it's an archaeological uh, area within the city. And it's only that big, which is about seven or eight miles if you would go around the ancient uh, walls. That's not a three days journey. So we aren't sure what that means, but it's possible that it means that there was a district of Nineveh, kind of like New York can mean the city, it can mean the state. And so perhaps there was, as, as Jonah came into Nineveh, it was Nineveh the district. We aren't sure exactly of all that. But it nonetheless was a huge city for its day. And even in an area that small, and we may look at this more at another time, there was, there was room in ancient standards for a couple hundred thousand people. So it was a great city. In fact, historians, uh, there's some conflicting evidence whether Babylon was bigger or Nineveh was bigger. But essentially, in, in ancient terms, this is the New York City and the Chicago of its day. In terms of size, but it was more than that. It was important to God. Of all the foreign countries surrounding Israel, whether it's Egypt or Edom or Babylon that was emerging or whatever it might have been, God chose Nineveh. So there was a special compassion that God had put upon Nineveh for this generation, important to him. A little advance notice, I think this is going to happen two weeks from today. Uh, we will be uh, having a video call with Rhett and Stacy Staus in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and just to get, catch you up a little bit, there are missionaries from here. You know, Stacy's from Oostburg. Uh, uh, they are been there for, what, a year and a half or, or more, two. We're two years into it. They've learned the national language. They've uh, become part of a, an established team now to go into a tribal area. And in fact, the most recent letter shows that they've chosen the tribe they're going to go to. And so that will begin a process now of building a house and learning an unwritten language, writing it down, creating an alphabet, teaching people to read, 
translating the Bible so that they can get to the place where anybody walking in these doors is already. And then you teach the Bible and see people come to faith in Christ by God's grace as we pray and a church established like we take for granted here. There's a, about a thousand population of the people that speak this language. That's a very great city to God. And it's so important that he has called us along with other churches and supporters to focus on what God wants to do in this particular village. That's a very important village. You could just as well put up a banner with them and God's compassion for the world, whether it's Nineveh or this village in Papua New Guinea. Because God has a heart of compassion for the world. So Jonah begins in verse 4. We see his obedience in verse 3 and his message in verse 4. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. So we, we hear about the first day and we see that there are 40 days. Uh, I don't know if he preached all the same message the other 39, but I kind of assume that he did. Jonah speaks up. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a warning. Let's think about how, um, what this message does for Jonah, uh, for Nineveh, and then what it means from the perspective of God. Jonah, first of all, Jonah is forced by God's instructions to hang out for 40 days. This, could, this is not like dash into the city, tell them your message, and get out of town. 40 days. So, of course, you've got to wait around to see What's going to happen in 40 days? I'll assume that he did preach the next 39. It was a relatively easy message in terms of preparation and memorization. <laughs> What's my 40 days and I'm going to overthrow Nineveh. Okay, I got that, Lord. So does he go each day and say the same thing? 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah's forced to process a message that he says over and over. And he obeys. Secondly, what does the message tell us about Nineveh? It tells us that they had time. God gave them time to repent. Time to repent as they listened to a man that probably appeared to them as a, as a quack, as a madman. It's been suggested probably appropriately that if somebody, and there have been bodies in fishes that have been found, but if somebody was in a fish for three days, you don't come out looking the same. The, the gastric juices will do terrible things to your skin, abrasions and discoloration, and so he may have looked horrible. And he's the guy who shows up about a month later and begins to preach. And you can write him off on day one and two and maybe ten, and, and yet somehow God uses maybe even his appearance and the simplicity and the seriousness of his message for the people to begin to process. This, this could be true. What was the message? Nineveh will be overthrown. This term in this context means, most. I'm sure it meant to the, to the Ninevites, military overthrow. And that's what any king, any president, any ruler, and any nation, and any military would be most concerned about is, the, is, the, is the, our nation under threat. 
those of us who are old enough to remember our emotions on 9-11 know that there was a radical shift in our mindset when suddenly we realized how vulnerable we are on our own soil. That's why terrorism is terrorizing. Because we are vulnerable here. And I'm just grateful that we have a lot of people and departments in our government and military who stay, night, stay awake at night thinking about that so I can go to sleep. And, and, and that's the biggest threat probably on their mind as they begin to hear Jonah say this over and over. Is this true? So Jonah has to deal with the time factor. The Ninevites are given an opportunity to repent with that time factor. What do we see about God? Always the most important thing that you can find in any passage of Scripture is what is it teaching us about him? We see, first of all, that God is a God of justice. God had seen the, the, the sinful excesses of Assyria. They were a, known as a very cruel and powerful nation seeking to overthrow everyone around them. They were a threat already to Israel, which I'm sure is why Jonah disliked them. In fact, it's only about a, a full generation later that Assyria, another generation of people, but the very next generation in 722 did decimate northern Israel, those northern ten tribes, and take and deport thousands of people from Jonah's homeland. But for this little window of time, God was showing what? His grace. So on one hand, he was showing them his justice. I will overthrow. This is a true threat. A true warning God would have. But on the other hand, the 40 days shows his grace because he was giving them time to repent. We often give our kids when they're young, uh, a warning. If you do that again, how many times have you said that, right? <laughs> if you do that again, I will, and then we describe a discipline. We could instantly discipline them, but many times we give them also a second chance. And, but the discipline, the, the warning has to be uh, real, Nineveh needed to know the, great, the justice of God in order to appreciate the grace of God. No one understands grace unless they understand justice. We will never understand the grace of the cross. That it's really free. Salvation is by faith. Unless we understand the justice of the cross. That our sin really deserved eternal death in a real hell. So an understanding of grace... Our justice is essential to understanding grace. Uh, parents, uh, hopefully you realize that, that a child has to learn the seriousness of their sin, and it's sin. It's a sin nature, right? In order to appreciate the freedom that comes from your grace and their obedience. That's why uh, distracting a child from their disobedience is not effective. Because they don't need to be distracted from their disobedience by another toy or cookie or activity or look over here. They need to face their disobedience and their sin nature with a true warning that you would follow through. But you're a parent who loves them and so you don't want them to be punished so you often give them a warning. And then they can appreciate your grace because they didn't experience it.
God did not distract Nineveh. He confronted them with a very real uh, threat of punishment. There's a lot of grace in Jonah. There was grace for Jonah himself. There was grace for the Ninevites, which we'll look at more another time. But what does this passage teach us as believers about God's second chances for us? Uh, It's true we all have received grace. The fact that we're here is proof that we have not been punished as our sins deserve. We get that. There is, there, there is so much grace and so much blessing represented in this room for all of us. But specifically, Jonah seems to be a message about a second chance in the area of service. When we have resisted serving him. We resist serving the Lord the way he directs us because service always has a price tag. There's something that we have to give up in order to serve obediently. Jonah would have to give up his own plan for his life. And very many times there are are major uh, life adjustments that take place. To serve means taking time from whatever priorities we have had in our life that are more self-centered to say, no, I'm going to obey God doing this. It can mean letting go of our, our grip on some financial goals. It can mean letting go of, our, of our, our comfort zones. I'm comfortable doing this. God's asking me to do this. So I picked out a, a number of examples from uh, the Bible where God with a believer, has given an instruction, this is what I want you to do, and sometimes they're, they're, they're functioning well, doing exactly what God said, and then at some point there's an area of disobedience. And then we're going to look at those who receive a second chance and some that do not. I always think it's important when we want to illustrate biblical truth to use, whenever possible, biblical illustrations. I remember the, the pastor that uh, mentored me uh, during my college years always was emphasizing uh, to me the importance of Bible illustrations about the Bible. Now, on one hand, um, I know we all appreciate hearing stories about one another or you know, a story about me or a story about you, how it illustrates a truth, but you know when you're looking at a Bible illustration that God put this here for a reason. A couple of passages just introduced this. 1 Corinthians 10.11, Now these things happen to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us. It can't be more simple or clear than that. God gave us the events, the record, the people of the Bible to be warnings to us. Or on the flip side, it's also for our hope and encouragement, Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so we learn both the, the, the negative side and the positive side from looking at the people of the Bible. So let's, uh, let's take a look at some. These are just, just samples of people who were given a second chance, first of all. So we'll take a look at their disobedience at some point and uh, then what the consequence was, a second chance, did they receive a second chance, uh, did they obey the next time, and then for what purpose? What did the future look like 
then based on their response. Moses. Moses was obedient. He was already, I mean, he was not easily convinced to lead the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, right? But he did. And in the process, after, after obeying the Lord on, on, on many things, there came that time where he was so upset with the people that he lost it. And God said, I want you to speak to this rock and it'll bring out water. And what did he do? He hit it in disobedience. And God said, because of that, you will not enter the promised land. That's where you're headed. You yourself will not go in. That consequence did not change. And yet, Moses was not struck dead. Moses was allowed to continue to lead the people, and he did so well, and he he was obedient after that disobedience, and he faithfully led the nation right to the edge of the promised land and prepared them spiritually, the book of Deuteronomy, and he encouraged them. He had a second chance, and, and, and he did a great job of it. David is an obvious example, a man who was a man after God's own heart, and he was writing psalms as a, as before he was even king, and he had, had provided godly leadership, but there came that time in his life when, in, because of pride or laziness, and all these things become part of a spiritual fall. He had that adultery with Bathsheba and uh, organized the murder of Uriah, and it looked like the end of David spiritually, right? But he repented. Was there still consequences? Yes, the family immorality issues that followed in 2 Samuel and the, the tragedies in his family. And yet David recovered spiritually and continued to be a spiritual example and is to us today and I believe continued to write and benefit us, given a second chance, so that he could continue to lead his people and even us today. Then Jonah, the example we've been looking at, didn't want to go, almost drowned, second chance, yes, and then he preached in Nineveh. Peter, New Testament, he denied Christ. A man who had followed and been with Christ all those three and a half years, seeing all those miracles, but when Jesus was arrested, suddenly fear took over him. Fear is the enemy. And fear is the enemy's key tool, you could say. But fear took over him and he denied Christ. The consequence was this incredible remorse. Every, every passage describes his shame and his weeping and the, the embarrassment before Christ, if you will. Was he given a second chance? Oh, yeah. Second chance. Was he obedient? Boy, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, this man was transformed and he becomes this powerful evangelist launching the church there in Jerusalem and leading courageously. Mark, sometimes called John Mark. Mark was selected by Paul and Silas to accompany them on that missionary first missionary journey. He, I'm sure he was all pumped. He was, he was asked to help and he wanted to help and he went along about a third, fourth of the journey, and all of a sudden, he left. He says, I'm going home. I'm not going to do this. What was the consequence? Well, the next time Paul and Silas got ready to go on a missionary journey, Paul says, I'm not taking him. And John Mark missed out on being a companion of the Apostle Paul. But Silas gave him a second chance. And they had a journey together. And then we don't hear much about him until... Later, 2 Timothy 4.11, later in life, Paul says, hey, send Mark to me because he is profitable to me for service. And so Mark also responded 
having been given a second chance, and God used him as he became faithful. There are some that were not given a second chance. Interesting just to to see some of the stories. One would be King Saul. King Saul, preceding David, um, started out being filled with the Spirit, accomplished some great victories over the surrounding nations, But there came that crucial time where his true character was exposed and where Samuel said, wait for me, don't offer an offering till I get there. But there was a battle that was on the verge of happening and he became so desperate and fearful. And so as a result, Saul made the offering and God said, that's it. You will not see your line, your family continue in the kingship but I will give it to somebody else. And that became, of course, David. Now, he didn't strike him dead. He continued to serve, but it was a continuous downward cycle. He did not ever lead spiritually again. He was chasing down David, trying to kill him, eventually deteriorating spiritually to the point of of calling on a medium and uh, uh, the occult involvement and then dying in battle the next day. No more effective service. A little-known story is an old prophet in 1 Kings 13. Kind of a difficult story. We don't have a lot of details, but there was one area of command that God said, do this, or rather don't do this, and he did it, and a lion came and killed him. Wow. Did he get a second chance? No. So there was no opportunity to obey the next time. There was no future service. Same was true of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. People were in the early church, beginning days of the church, were were selling land and giving money so that it could support the other Christians as they were gathering and so forth, and people who had needs. And it kind of looked like, wow, people really really liked those people that did respected those people who did that great sacrifice. So they sold their land and they brought the money to the apostles and said, "Here's here's the money from our land. Is that all of it?" Yeah, that's all of it. It wasn't all of it. They had lied about it. The issue was not that they gave part. The issue was that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God struck both of them down, husband and wife. There was no future ministry for them. So as we look at those, that list, and there's, there could be more, two, two things that stand out to me are these. One is, God knows the future. God knows that they would obey the second time. And the ones that he gave a second chance, they obeyed the second time. They responded to the Lord. The other reason, the other the other issue we see is that the reason they would be given a second chance is what God was going to do through their lives. God had a plan, and they, in their obedience, became a part of the plan that God had for their lives. So We're given a second chance because God knows we'll obey. We're given a second chance so that we can serve the purpose that God has in mind for us. I love the book of Jonah because I guess it's so real, it's so like us, because all of us in different ways have resisted God at different times. And there could be a long season of resistance where we, there's something that God, someone or something that God wants us to do or to serve a, a person or something in our marriage, something in our, in our, in our church, something in our uh, community, something, whatever it might be. How do you know 
what God wants you to do to serve him. There is, there is no uh, single answer to that question. But it begins with, I think, two key first steps. To find how God wants us to serve, we have to be connected to him. If you think, visualize just a, a line between us and God. We have to be responsive to him. And, and he begins to work in our hearts and by his spirit. And he begins to transform an attitude or, or address whatever it might be. It's our connection to God. Not the second step is. It's our connection to people. It's a connection to one another. Because we will not find our spiritual gift, if you will. Not that finding, labeling a gift is the most important, but we will not discern where God is leading us when we are living in an island spiritually. Without the input of others, and I think most importantly, without the opportunities that being connected to one another develops. It's as we are connected and begin to get to know one another, we find out what you need, what you need, what you need, and there are things that I can do that can meet that need, and there begins a whole process of life that takes place. It's like a spiritual transplant as we we get a second chance when we are connected to God and connected to each other. Uh, Probably after the uh, series on Jonah, We're going to be looking uh, for a season at some of the one another's of the New Testament. It's mind-boggling what God has in mind for us as a body when we're connected together. And it's in the life of those relationships, knowing one another, that God begins to show us his plan for our serving I don't know what a second chance means to you. We know that in a general sense, God is so gracious that he is calling us back to obedience in a lot of different personal ways. But I trust that you also have in mind that God is going to use you between now and the day he calls you home in some profound ways. And so we need to be connected to him and to one another. If God gives you a second chance, take it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, humbled that you can use us when we know you could use somebody else. You were so gracious to Jonah that uh, you didn't discard him, but you recalled him. And you began a process, a slow, difficult process of transforming his heart from selfishness to compassion. I pray that you would do that work continually in our church family. Thank you for for so many ways in which uh, the body is serving one another and serving the community and serving in families and marriages here at Open Door. May, May our faithfulness to you ever increase. In Jesus' name, amen.